What is going on, everyone? This is Jay Kofer. This is The Land Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. We have a gentleman named Phil Holcomb from Sullivan County, Pennsylvania, here on the show. And this was from the Great American Outdoor Show. We sat down, snuck away from the show for about an hour or so, and talked about uh, Phil and what he does, what he looks for in properties. And it's kind of a conversation that would be great for anyone that's looking to maybe buy a small parcel. So Phil has, um, I want to say it's right around that 10 acre mark, a parcel. He has one bulletproof stand that produces every single year. So we talk a little bit about how that looks, um, how he sets that farm up and how he hunts it with absolute precision to get the most out of a small parcel. And then when he's not hunting that piece of, uh, ground that he owns, how he's bumping around on public ground and still scratching that itch. So a really great conversation. I think it's uh, really relatable and we'll hope you guys have a wonderful week. Thanks to everyone that has been taking the time to write a written review. It really helps us out. If you haven't done so and you find value in this, uh, this show or this this platform, please take a minute to do so. It really helps us out. And as always, there is the resource sign up in the link tree, link tree link, go there, sign up. We are organizing those assets and we'll have them out to you. And it will be exclusively sent to that those folks. So if you want to get it, you're going to have to be on that email sign up. So hope you guys have a great rest of your week until next time. See you guys. We're live. This is episode seven at the great American outdoor show. And I have, um, Phil Holcomb. Yep. Here, thanks for coming down. I know you had the day off. You you buzzed down here, and thanks for thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. And not a problem. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And you've been. We were just talking, so you've been on the Habitat podcast with uh, Jared and Brian three times. Yep. And you're part of their land manager or the the land team, basically what yep. they have there. So, how long have you? How'd you meet them? Uh, mutual friends um, that uh, actually had been on the podcast uh, the first couple of episodes um put us in touch um started you know talking with jared and and uh uh we had a lot of things in common in terms of both being small property owners mm-hmm. um and uh uh he said hey let's do a do an episode we did that uh first one was was kind of on my uh approach to food plotting um mm-hmm. and the, the kind of the method that i use uh um which is pretty minimal, no equipment, no tillage. Um, and then, uh, from there basically just, uh, you know, became friends, kept in touch and, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's really where it came from. Yeah. I, I like Jared and Brian a lot. We've had the privilege, talked with them multiple times. They've been on the yep. podcast. They came down to the office and, uh, it seems I joined their Facebook group, the Habitat group yep. there. Yep. And, uh, they have so much depth with all their, with all their listeners and, uh, and great guys. So real quick though, on, so your kind of profile, your hunting profile, if I had to say, was a mixture of, of managing the smaller parcel yep. and then scratching the itch of, cause small parcels, it's easier to overpressure it. Correct. And any mistake is amplified, <laughs> you know, by yeah. a lot. Yeah. And so you, you have kind of this mix of hunting public ground and, and private ground and scratching both itches. Yeah. How, when did you start developing or, or kind of sp- sprawling out into the public ground there um i pretty much grew up hunting state land Mm -hmm. and um uh not too far from where i live now in pennsylvania but more central pennsylvania um uh, growing up that's deer camp was uh actually a state lease camp that uh, a friend friend of the family had um and uh, it was in the middle of a huge track of state forest and um so pretty much have always hunted um uh a lot of these um, you know, big woods and mountain areas. So that I've always 
had that, um, you know, uh, that exposure. And it's always been, uh, something that I always look forward to every year is the ability to go get out and put some miles on, go see some really beautiful country, um, maybe see some deer, um, you know, it's pretty low deer density areas Mm -hmm. and stuff. So, um, but, uh, it wasn't until, um, I moved back to Pennsylvania. I've lived in a bunch of different areas, uh, everything from, um, really dense urban areas to the middle of nowhere, like where I live now, Pennsylvania, uh, all over seven different States. What Um, what dragged you around to seven (laughs) States? Um, when I, uh, when I was in my, uh, I guess from about the age of 13 on through college, um, my dad's job, he was moving around, um, for, uh, you know, different, uh, uh, opportunities, um, Mm -hmm. basically during that time frame. So, um, everything from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, uh, upstate New York, um, uh, Long Island, New York, um, Northwestern Pennsylvania, suburban Detroit, Seattle, Washington, uh, and the suburbs of Atlanta. So what was your favorite place out of all those that you lived? Man, that's tough. There's most of them had a lot of great things about them. Some of them had also a lot of terrible things about them. Sure. Um, I, um, you know, I, I think, um, where I live now is probably, uh, my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I also really enjoyed, um, the very far east end of Long Island. Um, there actually is a pretty good amount of bow hunting opportunities. There's a lot of deer. Okay. Um, it has the capability of producing some extremely big bucks, uh-huh. um, which isn't really something that most people would think of. But then also um, the saltwater fishing opportunities mm-hmm. are like world class. And uh, for a while, I was really, uh, really, really into surf casting for big striped bass, bluefish, and uh, false albacore and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, so I, I miss, I miss the, the beach, you know, sure. uh, but I also, uh, really, really like, um, uh, the big woods and the mountains and just being far away from everything. Yeah. That's the one thing that always surprises me here a little bit about, about the show. Cause we get people that come to the booth that are from Virginia, West Virginia, yep. upstate New York, downstate New York, yep. obviously Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and way more big deer than what. I, I, it's just like anywhere else. There's pockets yeah. of, you know, I guess underrated areas yeah. or just, you know, in a location where big deer can grow. And then beyond that too, there is a lot of opportunities out here in terms of, like you said, you know, hundreds yep. of thousands of acres Yep. and, uh, these areas get these, these stigmas <laughs> and whether they're right or wrong, I don't know, but right. I don't, gosh, <laughs> I, I think it really just comes down to pretty much anywhere where whitetails exist, um, there's going to be some of them that evade whatever the pressure is, no whether matter that's what. hunting pressure, yeah. whether that's cars on an interstate, whether that's natural predators um, or whatever, they're going to be able to make it through that gauntlet uh, and they're going to get mature. And mm-hmm. when that happens, uh, there's obviously the opportunity for, uh, you know, that trophy class um, antler, you know, caliber to, to exist. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's really just what we see. And I think what we're really seeing now is in the, you know, the internet, uh, information, social media ages, um, you're just able to see these deer come out of these places that, you know, whatever it was 10, 15 years ago, yeah. nobody would have ever known, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. And, uh, so there's, they're, they're just, they've always probably been there. The, uh, this is the, magnified. 
Correct. Yeah. And, um, and that's what we're seeing now, but I, I mean, it's, it's good and bad. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure some people are like, yeah, shh, don't talk about it. <laughs> this place, that place, the, or whatever. The world, um, the world always gets smaller. I swear. Yeah. The more uh, the internet <laughs> matures, the more people you talk to, yeah. it's like, wow. Or, or when you're in an airplane, you ever think about when you're in an airplane? You, like, we all live. Yeah. <laughs> underneath there, right down here. Every one of us. Every one of us. Yeah. yeah. And, and everyone, sometimes yep. uh, resident planet Earth. Yeah. Yep. But people uh, love to, you know, bicker. Yes. <laughs> but yes. anyhow, um, so. Um, you know, throughout there, what did you think of Washington out of curiosity? Did you get a run around out there? I, I did get to spend some time outside of the greater Seattle area, um, uh, up in the, uh, um, uh, like Mount Rainier National Park mm-hmm. and some of the state or, uh, national forest land around that, as well as, uh, getting on the, um, uh, leeward side of the mountains where it gets a little drier, um, kind of like a high latitude, um, kind of desert area, a lot of like just uh, still a lot of mountains, but then like just has this really desert, really arid kind of, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, feel to it. Um, and uh, um, also been over to um, Idaho up in the kind of the northern panhandle section. Um, I I thought it was uh, it was a really pretty interesting place to live. Um where they do have whitetails, um, they do grow some really pretty big whitetails. And, you know, it's like a lot of some the other Western states that have whitetails, they're kind of like not the focus mm-hmm. of hunting. So um, there tends to be some really good hunting opportunities there. I didn't personally get to, to hunt for deer out there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, I mean, it, 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 was, it was a nice place to live. I mean, weather-wise, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, cloudy overcast uh mm-hmm. you know but it's not like rain rain all the time like it's, it's like, a mist. like a mist yeah um winter doesn't really get too too cold until you know unless you go, go up in the mountains um in the seattle area if it snows because there's a lot of hills that the city's built on you know it's it shuts the place down like they just they're not used to having like actual snowfall down there but then you drive 45 uh minutes 60 minutes uh to the east and start climbing in the mountains and they get feet of snow at a time, you know? So, um, you know, I got to do some snowboarding when I was out there. It's just, it's really pretty country. Um, just a lot different than anywhere else that I've lived. Yeah. But then, so home is Pennsylvania, obviously that's Correct. where you're, that you're a smaller parcel. That's a multi-generational piece. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that or, uh, your upbringing, upbringing of, of hunting that. Cause it seems like you grew up in that, in a household that, enjoyed hunting and, yeah. and the habitat side of things. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, introduced to hunting and outdoors and stuff, um, through my, uh, my, my dad, um, he was big into, um, scouts and boy scouts. Um, so came up, you know, doing a lot of, the, uh, the scouting activities and stuff like that. Um, uh, being involved with the, uh, Pennsylvania bow hunters festival association, um, which is another multi-generational, exposure to uh hunting in the outdoors that started with your family or pretty close uh, to it well yeah, my my grandfather and my great uncle were two of the founding members there's other people sure um other families involved and stuff um and uh so yeah just it, it's always been a, a multi-generational um experience uh for me so uh you know um the the property was never really um 
looked at as a hunting opportunity really mm-hmm. um it's a, because it was a small part small yeah small piece and um growing up my grandfather did have other pieces of property that he owned um he he lived to be quite old actually uh just just shy of 100 mm-hmm. um and so as uh you know you start to outlive your retirement and <laughs> you know he had sold some some parcels off um and that was that one was closer to where he lived and he was a inventor uh, type of guy, just constantly tinkering and stuff like that. So he actually used it, um, uh, as he would call it for his inventory, which for a lot of people would translate to a junkyard. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he grew up in the depression. Uh, if you needed something, um, you know, you learned how to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a guy that could pretty much make anything from anything. And, uh, whether it was, you know, carpentry, um, electrical work, plumbing, um, mechanical, uh, welding. I mean, you name it, he could do it. Um, so he kind of grew up with that mentality of, you know, you didn't just get rid of anything because you never knew when you were going to need it to make the next thing. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I have had to work on kind of cleaning up some of that as that was part of some of my initial habitat projects was kind of moving some junk around, you know, but, uh, is what it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm grateful and thankful to have had, uh, a, you know, a grandparent in my life, you know, um, for, for that long, you know, well into my thirties. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and he was, uh, uh, I, I wish I was able to retain a fraction of what that guy knew how to do. Right. <laughs> you know? And I don't, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, actually the, the major part of his involvement with the, uh, bow hunters festival, uh, was the, uh, uh, inventing and manufacturing of the, um, uh, world famous, uh, running deer target, um, which is a, uh, three-dimensional, uh, deer target on a track. Um, uh, it's about 211 feet from one end to the other. Uh-huh. Um, the shooting line's about 40 yards out. Uh, so it's a pretty good poke and it's a, it's a moving target. That's I mean, what it's like in competition shooting, right? Um, or similar. We, we, uh, I guess I mean in so, I've seen I've seen some other um moving targets and stuff but yeah. um this one is uh we do have a part of our competitions at the event do use it. is is used for that but this is just generally uh we literally have um uh, 110 pins like sh- shooting stations yeah um so we can have up to 110 people shooting at this target at one time whoa um uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's a spectacle. Be pretty intense. Yeah, it is. It's a spectacle. Um, you know, we have a control tower and stuff. It's a very, um, controlled environment. There's yeah. a set number of passes. Um, you know, uh, a, there's a, you know, a buzzer that's used to signal when you can go get your stuff and, and uh-huh. when the next run's going to start and everything. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's just a fun thing. It, you see kids out there that are, you know, shooting a, a a tiny little recurve and stuff, and half the time their arrow doesn't even make it, yeah. you know, half the distance. But they are shooting at the running deer target, yeah, you know, and, and they're having a blast. Uh, every year during the event, we we do a number of uh, kids only shoots where we do move that line up, mm-hmm. and um, it's uh, only you know only the kids are allowed to come down and shoot and stuff. So um, it's. Uh, it's a family focused, uh, event cause it, it, it's just, that's just what it's always been. You know, it's always been about, uh, 
getting everybody involved in um in archery and bow hunting and and um you know kind of the fellowship that goes around it so yeah that's cool so i you know reading up on your website here or you know your profile on there is you've you've done a, a variety of work here on 15 to 400 acre size farms yeah. what on average do you think most farms lack out of the gate meaning oh, man meaning what is the lowest hole in the bucket in most scenarios is it behavioral <laughs> is it uh the habitat yeah so i mean that that definitely spans spans the the uh the gamut here so yep i think um i think on the the smaller sized pieces um it's probably um the the biggest opportunity area is probably understanding um understanding how that piece fits into the larger you know system of the neighborhood we'll call it sure. you know so um you know that i think that's a huge part um you start to get below your 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 standard like 40 acre pieces and stuff um you know pennsylvania we don't have like the um like that standard 40 80 uh one six you know square mile roads right by we one, don't yeah. yeah we have all sorts of crazy yep. property lines um but you know i think that 40 acre mark is kind of still translates um to a lot of people and a lot of scenarios you start getting kind of like down from from that and the influencing factors of the things that are happening outside start to go up mm -hmm. right property size goes down influence from outside goes up mm -hmm. um understanding that and then applying um uh kind of applying that thought process um i think that's the biggest opportunity i think a lot of people tend to get boxed into their property borders they're you know, it. Say, yeah. nothing else exists beyond that right right in a perfect world the deer beds here and it eats here and it goes you know uses this route to go between the two and then this is where i strike you know mm -hmm. um the smaller the property size um the less of those opportunities you know are are really uh, existing and, and quite often uh could be the case the, the deer are actually betting off the property or they're feeding off the property one you start losing different uh, control over different ends of that daily movement cycle. So understanding the part of it that you do have control of it or that um, in a way that you can manipulate it to kind of bring some of that back, right? Um, that's really where the biggest opportunities are that I see, um, you know, um, and then also understanding that um, each, each particular instance, each particular property, they all are very different. They're nuanced. Um, and quite often you can't um, just uh, uh, expect to have, you know, a uh, 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 blueprint, if you will, like right out of the out of the gate. Um, mm -hmm. you, you really have to to put some time and some some thought into it and um, kind of uh, base it off of of. Uh, you know, what, what you do know, um, and, and how to mitigate some of those factors that are outside of the, the control. Um, you know, those are, those are, those are really the, the big opportunities that, that I have seen. Yeah. And so if, if you had to pick one or the other, uh, controlling the bedding or the food, what would you pick? That again would be <laughs> dependent on, on, so what, what's happening, say they're, they're bedding off the property mm -hmm. um how much do you know about 
what's going on over there. Why they're bedded there. <laughs> why they're bedded there. What part of it, you know, do they, you know, and the other thing too is um, uh, the terrain. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of times even does, like they shift that bedding throughout the course of a day. You know, they might bed first on a, a southeastern exposure because that's where the sun is and, and uh, gets them, you know, the warmest, the fastest. Uh, but then they might get up and travel whatever that distance is. Could be a matter of 20 yards. It could be 80, 100 yards feeding along the way, bedding back down. Um, it's hard to be able to assess those type of things that's not on your property. Um, and, you know, but, um, you have to start thinking about what, you know, what's realistic to, um, really be able to understand and be able to control. Um, but it, if, uh, they're bedding very far off, um, and there seems to be, you know, what you can tell a very good reason why maybe it's a terrain feature and you just don't have that. And there isn't, there isn't that terrain feature, um, you know, repeating from, where they are to where you are and you're just not going to be able to necessarily move that bedding mm-hmm. closer to you. Um, then, um, you know, you're looking at the food and, and how you can attract them using that, um, where the destination food sources are. Um, are they, um, passing through your property already to go between the two? Mm-hmm. Um, it may be, uh, a situation where, um, you know, putting a small food plot on your property as kind of like a staging plot, um, where they kind of come out of that late afternoon bed first to move into that plot, um, making it secure with good cover, uh, around it, um, making sure your access, if you're going to hunt either at that plot or how they access the plot, um, make sure you have good access, uh, and not really being detected while you're there. Um, and uh, and then as well as kind of directing that movement off your property in a way that allows you to get in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may also stand a reason that the lowest hole in the bucket is good secure cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and developing that, uh, you know, could be, um, you know, more beneficial than trying to convert that cover or uh, convert the the space into food. I mean, it, it really is highly situational. So, um, I've, I've hunted properties, um, where it was a small property, uh, and it was, it was like the best cover. Um, and you really had to, um, hunt the the peripheral, you know, you really couldn't, you couldn't get too far in it, which presents its own problems of being close to, you know, the property line and stuff like that. Um, so if that's the case, you really kind of, and to make sure you have good working relationship with neighbors um, mm-hmm. and understanding that you're you're hunting the property you're hunting you're not trying to hunt theirs um, and getting access or securing permission for access to retrieve something or whatever it is make sure you you cover those bases well before you do anything else mm-hmm. you know what I mean um, I've also uh, had properties that were um, it made more sense to have uh, an attractive food source. Um, and then build, um, kind of build secure cover around that, not necessarily bedding cover, but cover that promotes the use of that food source, um, 
you know, in the in in daylight, uh, as well as gives you the ability to uh, hide your access um, and or um, promote um, a certain uh, pattern of of movement using that security cover to maybe take the visual um, advantage away from a cruising buck, um, make him really commit to having to come into that plot or whatever whatever that uh, attraction is, um, and being able to manipulate the way the deer kind of flow flow through that. Um, so I think there's there's just it comes down to again understanding um, just know, looking at it with a holistic approach. Yep. You know, yep, basically what you can control, what you can't control. Yep. I mean you hear a lot like, oh I you know gotta have you know gotta control the betting, gotta con- you know, we gotta control this part or that and and that's all fine. Like as long as that is really what makes there, sense. Right. Sure. Um, but it doesn't always have to be all one or all the other, um, you know, but I think betting deer on the smaller the property you get, betting the deer there becomes more and more risky in terms of a hunting opportunity. Because of access? Correct. Access as well as, um, you know, you might be able to beat them back to the bed in the morning, but then uh, you can't get out of your tree for any reason, you know, or... Oh, I see. After that morning hunt. Yeah, after that morning hunt and they're bedding all around you. Yeah. Um, you know, consideration for the terrain, the switch in, in thermals um, mm-hmm. as the as the day goes on, uh, wind direction change, um, you could end up really, you know, risking more than it's worth to bed them there. Sure. So um, sometimes trying to make the improvements that are kind of, um, you know, the uh, – uh, moving them, you know, basically moving them through, giving enough time for the opportunity to be there, but then not, you know, holding them up, uh, and, and risking detection. And then basically, you know, ruining, uh, the property for a week, the rest of the season, whatever, you know, whatever it works out to. Mm -hmm. So your smaller parcel here, from what I understand in the past, you've had one stand, Mm -hmm. like the killing stand, (laughs) the spot. And I think that's, an interesting concept because I think a lot of people want multiple options yeah. and, you know, I want four stands on, on this, you know, 10 yep. acre parcel. Yep. What's, what was your thought process behind that and, and how has it been so effective? Um, so th- the way I was I, like, I kind of, um, arrived at it was, um, I, I felt like, um, if I had other, if I, I tried to do the, you know, for multiple wind directions thing, mm-hmm. Uh, which is usually the common thing. Now, I think that that's a, probably a really good approach for all things considered perfectly flat ground, a square rectangle mm-hmm. block of cover or whatever it is yeah. where you're always being able to access from the outside yeah. um, with the wind in your advantage. I think that there's definitely scenarios in a perfect where, world, yeah. right, where that makes sense. Um, my particular property is pretty much all sloped. There's really no really perfectly flat. Do you There's, only have bottom access? Uh, no, I actually I kind of have side hill, okay. like side access. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's, um, it's just a matter of if I tried to hunt it in different directions, I would be putting my scent into places where I didn't necessarily want it to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing so, you effectively shut down the hunting opportunity for that whole property. 
especially the the more often you do it. So if it's an east wind today and you hunt that stand and you put your wind into where the one doe group typically comes from, you know, say you did that two days in a week, you know, you start that that bedding area that they were utilizing, right? Returns and then you're area. hopping over to the, yeah. for the west wind and you're doing yep. kind of a similar, you know, you start doing that and you start having like um, the ability to to have like these multiple stands that are only like okay, yeah, versus being able to figure out um, that one spot that puts you in a situation where you're like at 90 to 100 percent every single opportunity, you know, uh, understanding prevailing winds. If your property is not flat, understanding thermals, um, how the two work together, how the two, you know, how they're also impacted by um, the vegetation types, uh, you know, where uh, a field edge or a um, uh, early successional habitat meets a, a wooded, you know, edge. Um, understanding how those things kind of move your your scent around um and then if you can particularly and and you should strive for this is um to get that opportunity where the prevailing winds are favorable for for your for your spot uh or the combination of prevailing and thermals so that you have the most opportunities like out of seven days in a week four or five of them um are huntable so this this one stand is it a morning stand an evening stand an all-day stand because i know you know maybe you tell me but what does that what does that look like for you so it's actually all the above um the way you know kind of the um uh the pattern overall like uh you know pattern of movement of deer in the neighborhood um time of year that i was like this is kind of where i think I need to be focusing my efforts to make it the best. Um, obviously, uh, I mean, it's, it's more rut focused. Um, you know, most places are going to, you know, hunt better. (laughs) Rut's a multiplier. It can make an okay spot really good for a short amount of time. Yes. And so what, uh, I'm really looking to do is, uh, so my, you know, my property, my generalized side of the hill, so to speak, is generally not where bucks spend time outside of the breeding season. They uh-huh. just don't. So trying to build buck beds and like do stuff like that or, you know, create buck bedding opportunity, anything like that just is kind of like, you know, not really out of the wind for what you can yes. do on that parcel. Right. So then it was, okay, well, if I want to hunt bucks, then how do I do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, well there's does here <laughs> they they the this this whole particular side of the hill like that's where they live mm-hmm. so those bucks will be coming in uh as the rut builds late october you know the, you really start to see it um start you know the the uptick in in buck activity and then it, it's clear through to you know the end of uh december in most years um and uh but at any rate um it's really just uh, um focusing on like okay so this time of year this is the, the the greater you know generalized pattern that we're we're looking for and then trying to um uh capitalize on that um kind of lay lay things out and build the attractions around around that um but uh yeah it it, it it's uh, uh 
I think I'm getting way too far off the. So I guess the, the long and short of it is, so if it's an all day stand, is it kind of on it? I'm just picturing, is it on edge of bedding with really great access? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, time of day, uh, end of October, mid, middle to end of October, I'm pretty much pretty standard, like with everybody else. Afternoon, evening hunt scenario works the best. Uh, we start to move into, um, you know, into November and then I can start slipping in in the mornings, mm-hmm. um, only doing the morning, maybe taking the midday off or sitting all day if I want. So it, I can do that. Now, what it is, is, uh, there's bedding close by, there's bedding opportunities that always hold, uh, the local doe groups, um, uh, multiple from, from like three different directions, let's say. Uh, and the bucks know how to cycle through that. Um, so by creating like a good secure, um, you know, attractive food source, I quite often I get the does coming back to bed in the morning. We'll stop and kind of top off. Um, and, uh, I have, uh, several, um, you know, mock scrapes that are now like some of the, like the community, community scrapes, scrapes in yeah. the area have been there. Like the, the one I have is, uh, I think this year is the, uh, this past season was like the 10th year that I've had it there. Wow. And it's, have you seen activity increase over those years? Or oh really? yeah. Okay. The first, the first couple of years, like uh, it was the first two or three years of, uh, after installing that particular one, um, it was like pretty much mainly used rut, more rut based, you know, October and, and into November and then a little bit in December. And then it just really stopped. But now year round, it's all, uh, yeah. yeah, every deer, every age class, both sexes, it doesn't matter. They use it. They, mm-hmm. they check the, you know, the, the licking branch. Um, they sniff the ground, um, or, you know, in the fall they're full on, you know, raking it and, mm-hmm. and tearing it up. And it's, you know, I also try to make them so that they have multiple licking branch opportunities, mm. um, like for the same scrape. Um, I, I feel like, um, one, you, you have less risk of one, uh, of the branch getting broken off and then it's just not as effective. Um, and at different heights, you know, you have some that the fawns can reach and they'll use all the time. And then mm-hmm. some of those higher ones, um, that actually seem like they're almost too high. I feel like a lot of the bigger bucks like really focus on those. Like we'll get right up on the hind legs and get up and kind of trap it in that, in the, in mm-hmm. the cage of their antlers and then pull it down. And I mean, mm-hmm. and work it while I think that sensation of that tension, like on their forehead and, and going up into the preorbitals and stuff. Like, I think that that's for some reason, like attractive to them. Like they, mm-hmm. they like that versus something that's just right there and kind of dangly. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, I it, um, during the the peak of the 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 chasing, seeking, and into chasing, uh, being there all day is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, the bucks are cycling through there, um, so that that makes sense if it's more of a, a rut stand for that full day approach. Correct for cruising. Is there food nearby? So I guess if you yep. if you so, I, I'm I'm picturing I'm trying to picture what this looks like in my yep. brain. So, so like picture um, a really steep. Uh, wooded like timbered hills hillside, mature timber, mm-hmm. um, and then just 40, a, forty degree, thirty degree, twenty degree. Uh, yeah, I want to say it, I want to say I'm in Illinois, like, so steep might be way different <laughs> than what it is I, to I, you. Um, 
from the top to the bottom is like uh, about 200 feet of elevation gain, and it's like between 20 and 30. So it's a little bit less at the bottom, and then as you get to the military crest, it starts yeah. to get steeper, and then mm-hmm. you hit that military crest, and it's like seven to nine percent. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. and and then it goes oh, quite a ways on that, and then it goes up again. Yep. Um, and uh, so I'm really like on the flank of the overall hill, like, um, and uh, I have the military crest. Like further up, you don't really have that military crest effect because of the the less steep. Mm-hmm. and how long and how much of a distance it is. But mm-hmm. right where I'm positioned, um, it starts to drop down quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, like to me, like a really advantageous, advantageous place to be in terms of thermals. Mm-hmm. Um, because so the further up on that lower uh, or less steep grade you get, yeah. the more that um, thermal is actually uh, moving parallel to the ground, like mm. moving up the hill following the ground right uh as that you know that hillside heats up but when you're back by that steepness that trajectory of the air coming up is more of an upward push Pushes so so your scent gets goes the first move is up instead of away from you mm-hmm. um then you put a uh prevailing that's actually kind of almost counter to that and they have this like effect where they hit and it just kind of it starts to go up and then that prevailing kind of cuts, catches a hold pulls, of it and blows it, it out. Yeah. And it's like way out over the valley below. Yeah. Um, so um, that's kind of part of the reason why it, it time of day, um, you know, can really. Middle of the day, it's bulletproof. Right. Yeah. And then and in the after, well, the evening as the sun sets and then you get kind of that stall in the prevailing wind, um, you start to have that down that downward and again being close to that drop off Mm -hmm. your downward doesn't come come straight down to the to the ground below you it start it's it's being drawn above the ground and down the hill so it's almost always above the level of the deer Mm -hmm. um it took a lot of milkweed (laughs) and a lot (laughs) lot of time (laughs) to to watch that and understand it um you know well i think that's the that's part of having a tuned in stand correct it takes that long to figure out what the heck is going on. there's a big there's a big element of that um where you can you spend a lot of time in that tree you know even just out of boredom you start to throw milkweed just to see something do something you know what i mean like um but uh you know you you start to really you you know sometimes you, you sit there and you feel that wind and it's like oh i felt it just on the back of my neck oh man that's not good right get the milkweed out and start dropping it and start seeing that, well, I was, what I was feeling was actually kind of coming up a little bit. And when it leaves my hand, it, it's going up and then all of a sudden it gets up 10, 12 feet above me already. Mm-hmm. And it's, sh- it's going back the other way, yeah. you know? Um, and I've also had times where I've been sitting there and I've been able to see, you know, I dropped the milkweed and it went off and it was like, yep, that's exactly what I was hoping it would see and it comes back a couple minutes later you see it <laughs> yeah. but it's like 70 feet up you know yeah. it's nowhere near a deer's nose yeah but it's going the other way you know and you're like how what did the- you know hey it works it's still working yeah you know maybe it drops out way up there but it at that point in time maybe it's not a deer i was going to encounter anyway yeah. um so uh you know those are kind of some of the things that i think um help kind of manufacture this 
you know, kind of scenario where, you know, having that one, that one tree to go to that is, um, you know, as close to bulletproof as possible is just going to increase, um, the quality of your sits. Um, and if it, if it coincides with, and you can make it work with prevailing thermals and stuff like that, that you can, um, you can hunt it repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing too, about, um, you know, the biggest thing is at that time of the year, those doe groups, keeping them as happy and, and oblivious as the food comes into play. Right. Right. And, and given, and so a bigger field or a bigger food plot, uh, you know, bucks are, you know, the does can see the bucks coming, you know, they're, they feel, they feel like little, little more edgy, like, it's a big focal point. There's probably more bucks entering there, you know, and before, you know, before the does are really receptive, mm-hmm. it, they don't want all that attention. They don't want to be bothered. So having this and it's close to bedding and it's got good cover around it. It's like they're being harassed all night on those big primary food sources. Um, and so they're, they're moving back into these places. And now it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, feed, this is going to be like the place where I can feed and not feel mm-hmm. like I'm really being harassed until the bucks track them down, you know? Right. And at that point they have, um, like escape cover opportunities. You know, I've watched it a lot of times of how these does will react to them in this kind of, um, cover scenario where they'll take off, um, they'll walk away, trot away, whatever it is. And they they won't go far. Mm -hmm. And then they just kind of stay in that cover and kind of wait and see like, what's the, what's that buck doing? Like, is he going to come chase me? Yeah. Is, you know, whatever it is, you know, obviously they're not thinking this through, but it's almost like they don't want to leave that, um, if they don't have to. So mm-hmm. they, they feel safe enough. They're weighted out. Sometimes, um, you know, the bucks don't, uh, especially like early in that seeking phase. Um, they, they're, they're not like going to go lock right onto a doe that runs away from them. They're just like, in this instance too, they're coming to those scrapes. You know, they might enter that food plot and there's does and those does, you know, kind of scatter a little bit, but that buck's just coming in to check that scrape anyway. Like a doe that runs away from him, he's like, mm, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice to know they're here. You know, he's like, mental <laughs> note. <laughs> yeah, mental note. Uh, come back here in like seven, eight days maybe, you know? Right. And, um, and, and that's kind of been, you know, another thing too about, uh, the longevity of the, of the setup is, is kind of like the local deer kind of have worked that in you know these things into like their their lives and it's multi-generational down through the deer now sure. you know um those doe groups that have been using uh, their fawns and their fawns fawns and you know um it just gets passed down so in years past how often do you hunt this, this that stand <laughs> that parcel like under five so the last 10? the last like four or five years has been under five sits myself personally yeah. and i've and, and i've shot um you know i've killed the killed the buck um and you know my son's getting older you know so I'll definitely there'll be more they'll probably be hunted more sure um and um but if i can i i i don't really if i don't <laughs> if i don't have to i'm not gonna hunt it you know because once i can kind of back out of that and just kind of give it to them and let it kind of serve as a little bit of a sanctuary from pressure in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. even though I don't feel that I'm really pressuring them that much. Um, 
when I am hunting it, but you know, eventually sooner or later you're leaving ground scent. Um, the wind's going to do something funky eventually. I mean, something's yeah. going to happen. I know where, you're there or right. knew you were there. At some Correct. Point. And, um, so if I can just take that out of the equation and give it to them, maybe that helps some of them, uh, you know, make it to, uh, another year or, or whatever. Um, or just give take some of that stress off. Even just taking the stress off of the herd, you know, mm-hmm. I think is a, is a good thing. Is overlooked. Like I I know I'm not like it's it's only you know it's less than nine acres. I'm not <laughs> I'm not holding Old and then growing. And deer. I'm not yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, just taking that stress off of the off of the the herd, I think is is good. Um, giving them giving them a, a, a space, you know, to do so is is important. Um. But, uh, but yeah, under, under five, I've had years where I've hunted, you know, a lot, hunted it a lot and didn't really, um, experience anything that like, like some rapid decline and number of sightings and stuff like that. Um, you know, double digits of sits, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that, but th- that's not necessarily double digits of days. That might've been a morning, you know, mornings and, and evenings sure. only, um, with a couple of all days, you know, put in there. Uh, sometimes I'll come in at, you know, eight or nine o'clock in the morning and sit all day. Sometimes I'll come in at, you know, 10 o'clock or noon or whatever, and then sit the rest of the day. Or sometimes I'll sit until two o'clock, you know, whatever the schedule works for me or what, you know, what I feel like, all right, I I've done, you know, I've seen what I, I, I'm going to see, I'm going to get down while the coast is clear and I'm going to get out of here. And then, um, you know, maybe there's a, uh, a completely unfavorable wind shift that's coming. Um, mm-hmm. whatever that may be like hunt as many of the hours that you can get out of it and then get out. Um, but yeah, the past, uh, I want to say the past, uh, four past four years have been under five sits. High level, high, uh, high yeah. percentage sits there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a question that I have, and I think maybe someone else, with small parcels, it's no secret there's more neighbors. Correct. So just in generality, what are some things that people should know or think of in these scenarios, whether they're looking to maybe buy their first small parcel or they have access to small parcels or maybe they can get a lease, a, a very marginal dollar lease just yeah. to lock it up to have exclusive you know, access. Yep. What, any words of wisdom on that? <laughs> and I know, um, I know every situation is different. Yeah. And, and yeah. So, I mean, I think it's well worth it to have um, – the best relationships that are that are possible with neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes life easier for everybody. Uh, just understand that your goals and their goals may not necessarily align, and that's okay. It doesn't have to. Um, and, and then, you know, temper that, you know, use that to temper your you know, calibrate yourself to like the reality of it. Right. Um, and, and then I think you're, you're not setting yourself up for failure and you're going to enjoy more of it. Sure. Um, but (laughs) just, um, you know, being, being flexible, being able to pivot and, and kind of change things. Um, you know, I, I think there's also, it's not a bad idea if you're going like kind of the DIY route, like, hunted a season or two and just see like what's already going on. Yeah. Right. Um, before you commit to something, maybe it ends up being like, Hey, this is probably not a good 
fit. I'm not going to sink the time and resources into doing anything about this. I'm just going to move on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or you, uh, the other thing is, is like, you know, sometimes you, or you, you can't force a square peg into a round hole. So mm-hmm. hunting it and understanding like what the deer are already doing, how they're moving through it. Um, and that type of thing, you can then just try to tweak existing patterns versus like completely change it and overhaul it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are probably many situations where you can completely overhaul it and it works the way it works, you know, like, uh, okay, that's exactly what I was intending. And, and this is what happens. But I also think you can go too overboard uh, out of the gate and you stop things from happening that may have been starting well off of your property and now it's putting deer are are shifting because of that and now they're not able to get to where they want to go the way that they were already moving and it's doing so in a way that's not advantageous for you anymore Mm -hmm. that you couldn't really see outside of your little box that you're in yeah too narrow-minded on right your small parcel right so um you know i think if you're going the diy route like having a season or two or whatever it is, running some cameras, just building that intel and this base knowledge so you're more effective with your efforts, yeah. whatever whatever you yep. decide you need to do. Yep. And that's the other thing too. I mean, when you're talking about potentially uh, you know, habitat modifications and manipulations that involve a chainsaw and cutting down trees, you know, you're 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 look at that tree and go, it took, you know, 40, 50 a, years. Right. However many decades for that to be where it is and the way it is now. So if I remove it and I wanted it to go back to that base condition, that's how long it will take. Can I live with that? Yeah. Just starting there, I think, you know. That's a great question to ask yourself. Is, is a place yeah. to – it puts you more on, on that, like, I need to I need, I need, need to get this right up front mm-hmm. or as close to right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes and, and then, learning. as long as you learn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only a, really a mistake if you, you know, if you didn't have a learning from it. Sure. Um, so just uh, you know, understanding stuff like that, I think, puts people in a in a frame of mind to like really want to make sure they get as much of it right as possible. Yeah. One. Uh, this was a question I wanted to ask. So on on those five days that you're picking to hunt on that parcel, yep. I assume it's wind de- dependent. But what are some other factors that you're saying? Okay, it's time. <laughs> okay. So historical historical data with trail cameras, um, with from trail cameras and and from hunting on, observations on, and stuff. Yeah. Um, I just I have certain dates and date ranges that I know like if I'm there with the right conditions, my chances of having an encounter or an opportunity are way. What higher. are what are some of those date ranges? Um, so late October is really um, the first range where it I ha- <clears throat> where I'm I'm like on pins and needles looking for that wind direction, uh, wind speed, um, frontal activity. Uh, and the, the actual known presence of, of a buck that, you know, is, is what we're looking for. So when those things line up and it's like anything from October 20, well, as early as the 20th to the end of that month. Yeah. Um, with a, a kind of a sweet spot range from like 24 to 29 kind of seems to be, you know, I know a lot of people like Halloween for some reason, this particular property, I've never, (laughs) never seen a Halloween thing where I'm like, should have been there on yeah, Halloween. Halloween, yeah. Right. Um, right around it. Sure. So maybe 
uh, half a mile away, Halloween's the spot, you know, or the the, the time. It's, yeah, but, the habitat type. I, same thing. Run a lot of cameras on different yeah. parcels, and there's some like you couldn't pay me to sit there on Halloween. And then <laughs> in other places, like okay, yeah, I, that's where crap, I need to be. Should have been there. Yep. So, um, my best buck that I've shot up there um, was on the 25th, and he was like, um, he was like just dancing around daylight yep. like the 17th and 21st and 23rd oh, yeah. like he was not full daylight i think the the was it the 17th 17th he was like it was probably legal shooting light but just right, right on, on the, the edge. edge you know and the other times were like you know an hour either side you know so um we had a cold a big cold front coming in uh, the wind speed and direction were like exactly what I'm looking for. And I knew that this buck seemed to be right about the time where he's gonna, he's gonna be there in daylight. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's basically what ended up happening. And, and, and it was like pretty close to, you know, down to the, to the, to the wire. Um, the way I heard him coming, um, I actually, and again, you know, it's another thing, you know, Every, I'm sure everybody has it where you're like, man, you know, haven't seen a deer since, you know, this. And, uh, well, I, if I got down now, get home, get dinner, start, you know, like my day is just going to go, hey, I get out now because there's nothing around. I can get out clean and just be gone, you know, yeah. and starting to go through the, the motions of like, mm, I'll put this in my pack now, you know, hey. and you, you know, though, it's like, I need to stay because these last couple of minutes are where it can happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's that mental, that mental, uh, dialogue you have. And, yep. and then sure enough, like, as I'm literally just like, I'm going to put my rope on, on my bow limb and start to get down hear that determined, like step that, that cadence. Yeah. And it's like, you know, of, of something on a mission, it's not running, it's not trotting. It's, it's not just a slow walk, but it's like this deer's coming. Yeah. And, um, we have a lot of beach, beach trees in our area. So, you know, they hold the, um, hold the leaves pretty, pretty late and stay green. Mm -hmm. Um, so looking back towards that direction, I can't really see it's just a wall of beach leaves and, um, <laughs> it's getting closer. And then, you know, it's been like maybe 30 seconds or so. And I haven't heard the deer walking anymore. And I'm like, it's gotta be, you know, it's gotta be in here somewhere. And I'm just, cause it's back over my left and I'm, I'm peering around the tree like so you know hard just hard all i'm moving my eyes to like the corners you know <laughs> like trying to look without really moving and i saw this rack move this rotate out of the periphery and i was like that's him mm -hmm. and he's i don't know 26 7 yards directly behind my tree and where he is is an intersection um two trails that i have made uh, he can go right and he's going to come, you know, right up, you know, 10, 12, whatever, 12, 13 yards. And he's going to come out and into the food plot. And then that big scrapes off to the left. And as he hooks like that, it's a perfect broadside, you know, slam dunk right in front of me. Um, if he comes to the trail to the left, I'm going to get an easy, you know, for a right-handed shooter off the left side, um, mm -hmm. broadside. Uh, multiple shooting lane opportunities, several trees and, and things that I've left in place in order to be able to get drawn when they're moving that, that trail. Um, 
And uh, <laughs> the only thing is, if he comes to the left just the way the wind was at that time, because we're just at that thermal switch mm-hmm. and always right at last light, that prevailing just drops off, you know, just gets still. It seems like it always gets still for a little, that's like transition three period. to five minutes. Yes. And we're in that. And I'm just slightly nervous if he goes left that he's going to hit the, it'll be about the second or third um, uh, shooting lane that might get, he might be able to get me. So I'm like, if he goes left, I got to, I got to get right on that first shooting lane, which is going to, is like 10 steps mm-hmm. if he goes left and he's in it. Um, and it seemed like forever, you know, he stood there surveying and stuff in a way I have, um, like hinged and cut trees and stuff on there. He he can't he doesn't have a visual into the food plot, but with that falling thermal and the prevailing, he feels very much like he's got wind in his favor. Um, but where he's standing, he can't he's not able to scent check that scrape. So the trail to the left comes right out to the scrape. And like I said, the one to the right, he's gonna he's when he comes out in the open, he's gonna hook a, a left and head towards it. So all of a sudden puts his head down and he goes, starts going to the right. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a, that's a, you know, a tough shot for a right-handed shooter. Um, but he's going to come up. And like I said, I know he's going to make that left turn and probably go, you know, right for that scrape. And sure enough, that's what he did. And, you know, I think it was 13 yards. Cool. So, um, and, uh, yeah, so that was pretty cool. And, you know, those are, like I said, I was like a late October, but then a lot of my other bucks have come in, in the, the first 10 days of uh, November. The promised land of time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, when you have one stand, one setup, you know, and and so that's that's all you really need. Yeah. Yeah, once you yep. have, have, have a new uh, tuned in there. So in terms of, you know, if you're only hunting there five times a year, that obviously opens up the opportunity for hunting on, on that public ground a bunch. Yep. And so what are some just key principles? I know we, we discussed previously the the three layers of suck so (laughs) is that a pretty can you live by that rule or i do okay so and yeah i definitely do for one i'm kind of a glutton for punishment like (laughs) i don't i like a lot of my buddies that i hunt with are you know some of them are 20 years senior you know Uh retired guys you know they have time you know yep (laughs) and um they're they're they you know they call them the death marches you know and i i just i there's something about that, uh, you know, the the physical exertion of that that is satisfying. Um, but yeah, just in order, uh, like I hunt those places to get away from pressure. You know, the 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 private land, you know, around my place. Like there's a lot. And you're of, saying yeah, a lot of pressure. And I think that's a common theme too. And you know, depending on what state you are and what public land opportunities yeah. there are, but most times the a lot of the private is pressured way more heavily than yes. the public. Obviously, yep. you know, the obvious locations of public obviously gets yep. a ton of pressure, but yep. the three layer of suck uh, yes. Ex- option is. And that's exactly it. We have really big tracts of, of <clears throat> public land. Um, and um, they're pretty intimidating to a, a lot of people at face value. Like sure. um, just the roads in them. I mean, they're not maintained roads like. Uh, if you got some snow, like in our rifle seasons in December, so you've got some snow, um, some people just aren't going to be able to drive, but their vehicles just won't be able to get them yeah. there without getting stuck. 
there's no cell service. Like hardly any of these spots have cell service at all. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's just, there's like a certain intimidation factor in some areas. So people just tend to stick really pretty close to a lot of access because it's just, you, they don't have to deal with or contend with a lot of the other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, there, but there's also overlooked spots that are within those areas, um, have one of those that I kind of keep in my rotation, um, to keep an eye on. I actually missed a really big buck in 2017 in this one spot. It was in rifle season. Um, I was trying to do like a little, uh, uh, wind bump to a buddy of mine and, um, 55 yards in from the road. I'm not talking one of these no access roads. I'm talking like a a road. road. Like this is the second day of rifle season. There's been no less than 50 cars. Yeah by this spot yep already this morning you know and this is 55 yards in from that road and this deer jumped up and i saw him heading away from me and i was like this that's incredible it's a huge buck you know Mm -hmm. so i actually um from my buddy was kind of more to my right and he this deer was heading straight out from me but i didn't want him to make a left so i sprinted and did a big like flanking maneuver to try to get out to the left and when they're running through brush like that and stuff they can't hear you you know they're 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 making a ton of noises they're crashing they're focused on where they're going and so making moves like that i think you know if i would have just stopped and like tried to like sneak that deer could have hooked the left and been gone and we would have never but i sprinted way out and around and i i made a lot of ground and i got far enough out that i think when he did slow down to go to go like reassess he could still he could hear me out there Mm -hmm. you know Uh, i had to wind in my favor but i think that that's where he ultimately turned and started to head kind of in the direction i wanted him to uh and then was basically made up some ground and then got into like sneak mode um it's it's pretty mixed like thick understory area and uh I did end up <laughs> jumping him. Uh, he was down on a really brushy creek bottom. It's all old beaver swamp ground. And um, he was running out away from me, and he, his antlers kept getting snagged, and his head was getting, like, knocked back and stuff. And I couldn't really see anything other than that. And he made it down into the creek. When he came up the other side, um, he, he hooked a left, and he's going away from where my friend was and he, there was no, he couldn't see this unfolding, you know? <laughs> right. And he hooked the left and I came up and I got on him and, and I just, I just shot way, way too fast. Rushed like, the, rushed the it, big just, spot. Yeah. I've done. And that deer turned and then ran out the whole, a uh, whole, the completely different direction he was headed and stuff. And, <laughs> um, but you know, that, like I said, that's 55 yards off the road in the middle yeah. of, you know, or the, couple first couple of days of our rifle season which is you know pretty insane pressure, but yeah um you get out into some of these bigger places and it's yeah it's just um multiple layers of obstacles that most people don't or won't deal with mm-hmm. um water crossings are big mm-hmm. uh real thick vegetation is big steep is big and distance um those things put you into places that you can have to yourself the zone where you're not messing with other people or if you are you're hunting with people that probably are uh being careful or thoughtful (laughs) like yourself exactly and um you know and a lot of the uh, um the other things i like to do and those you know 
especially in rifle season um, and in, in our flintlock, like we have a late archery and flintlock. Um, past couple of years, I got introduced to flintlocks and like, that's my new obsession. Like they're, <laughs> they're just, they're so cool. They're uh-huh. just super challenging. Um, and they're just, they're fun to shoot. And that season is so awesome. I mean, it's cold. There's not a lot of people out. Um, snow on the ground. You can track, like, just really switch it up and do different things that, you know, I don't normally, well, I do a lot now, but, you know, previously I would have been, like, you know, not into that style of hunting. And um, so uh, I usually hunt with, like, one or two other guys, and we try to, like, coordinate, you know, like, they're not guys that like to walk me if I'm in the big woods like that and it's a, a rifle or flintlock i i want to get out and cover ground you gotta like still hunt you're right i tracking um and i usually try to set it so that it's like if i do bump something maybe these guys can you know get a an opportunity and um but uh i think having th- those um opportunities uh you know in my area you know, I realize not a lot of uh, people may have the same opportunity, but if you're going to have a small, small parcel and you're going to try to, um, you know, really work it to, uh, hunt the best it can, um, managing your pressure is huge. Um, and, a, and obviously people hunt cause they, they love to hunt. They enjoy hunting. So, you know, if, do all that work to only hunt it you know, only hunt four or five days or four or five sits, not even days. Yeah. Not, right? yeah. <laughs> not going to scratch that itch. No. So, you know, I encourage people to find other opportunities, still do the work, mm-hmm. put the time in, you know, it makes the, those sits more effective, but you still get to go. Yeah. Run around like a wild maniac. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Go live the, the mountain man, you know, yeah. uh, uh, dream, you know, I, I think that that's super important. Um, and, uh, I also think that it makes, um, makes, you a better hunter um not yeah. just being locked into that one that one scenario over yeah. and over again you, i think you you know you got to go out and you got to sharpen sharpen your skills and sharpen the edges you know um go out to new properties places you've never been totally different types of habitat if you can um and try to you know read sign mm-hmm. follow tracks uh scout scout areas like the, the, the big pieces that I hunt, um, even when I'm hunting, it's scouting. Like I'm spending more, you know, a lot more time, um, checking things out, like from a scouting perspective, um, and then kind of filing that and being like, you know, Hey, maybe next year, if, you know, things uh, on my place are, are different than they are this year or whatever, I got this place and this place and this place where I think I can, um, if I'm in here at a, you know, in the early season that it's a better opportunity or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like this year I spent a lot more time in, in archery season, um, out on this public, um, uh, you know, this big area and ran a lot more cameras there than I ever have. And I ended up with, um, three really, really good encounters. Um, two of them in archery season. One was from the ground late October. I was slipping in to check a camera and kind of scout um, a portion of that area that I hadn't really been through yet. Normally, the way I access that camera, I kind of coming from a different 
different approach. And so I was like, I want to see what it's like on this end. And the wind was perfect. It was overcast, rainy, damp, perfect day to just kind of sneak and creep. Mm -hmm. And um, it was mid-morning, and there was a uh, – caught some movement. Uh, again, uh, with all the beach and stuff, there, the leaves are still on. It's hard to see. And then uh, it turned out to be a doe feeding on beach nuts. We had a pretty good um, beach mast year this year. We don't have a lot of oak in our area, like mm -hmm. actually pretty much like zero in a lot of these areas. So beach is kind of the big – uh, is a big draw when it is masting. Um, so she's feeding along and then I saw moving behind her and this rack pops up and it's, uh, I actually had the deer on trail camera and they ended up where she was probably 25 ish yards and he was just the other side of her. Um, and he was just kind of nosing her along, not really like pushing her. Um, and eventually she just kind of like decided she was done eating and turned and kind of walked off to the right and he stood there watching her walk away and then he turned and kind of went back the way that they initially came from um and that was within bow range on the ground you know mm -hmm. um just there was no way to get a shot through all that stuff um i uh had one where i was checking a trail camera um you know i hang them as high as i can conceivably do i usually carry a um climbing stick with me and um so put the stick on the tree went up pulled the um, card out and was standing at the base of the tree looking at the images and I heard something out in front of me and the tree that the, the you know camera's in is only like six eight inch tree mm -hmm. and just kind of peek around it and here comes this buck trotting right <laughs> right at me and that camera's on a scrape and he's coming this is November 2nd uh-huh like your bow with you yeah okay <laughs> bow's on the ground okay. oh. and I'm standing there holding my phone and I look around and I can see him coming I'm like just dropped down, grabbed grabbed a bow, knocked an arrow, and all I could do was just crouch, mm -hmm. like right by that tree. <laughs> and he he comes in, and he turns and he heads to that scrape. And I mean, he was where the light is, like mm -hmm. just That's right close. there. <laughs> yeah. And he initially didn't look at me, and he got to the scrape, and there's nothing between me and him at that point. And he just kind of did this like sideways look, like That's weird. And he looked like he was just going to work the scrape, but then he was like, yeah, I don't like whatever that is. And it, it, he was bounding off. I hopped up and like got myself clear of another tree. And uh, he ended up coming around to the right and giving me a broadside opportunity. I stopped him and I took a shot. I misjudged the range and shot right under him. Uh, yeah, but still it was crazy. You know, yeah. it's just pretty cool. And then in rifle season, I got on a track. I had already filled my buck tag, so I was just out more or less scouting side so my bear tag and and some doe tags but it was just like i'm just gonna go for a walk this one area want to check it out we got fresh snow it's snowing right now like this is a perfect opportunity and i got on a track and it was in with some other tracks and i sorted it out and i kept following it. i'm like oh this is an adult deer for sure and it's by itself i'm like this probably gonna end up having antlers but we'll just follow it and see and um started noticing the track was definitely fresh there was no fresh snow laying in it and it was still the snow that was pushed down was translucent and um uh it dropped down off of the primary ridge was headed down to this bench and it's it's pretty open hardwoods so i was looking way out in front of me and sure enough i see this deer standing broadside like 100 120 yards out and uh media i was like that's a big buck i can just tell from the you know against the snow mm -hmm. and um so i had a 
maple tree like 20 yards in front of me that was kind of between me and him and I was able to like get down and like creep out and look he was looking my direction but he wasn't he wasn't didn't seem alert or anything and I watched him through the scope and I mean it was a big mature buck um mm-hmm. especially for up there he's probably like in a like 120 inch deer but body was you know telling you like that's that's an old deer yeah and uh I watched him for like 15 minutes and he was feeding on some ferns and uh probably some beach he was kind of scratching around and then um, he just kind of turned and walked off. Now that was three quarters of a mile from where I was parked. Uh, so it wasn't distance wise. I wasn't very far, but that spot had a really thick Creek bottom and the Creek was kind of hard to get across yet. Like I just happened into a spot that I could get across. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know it was there. Right. Um, and that was right below the parking area. And when I got to that parking area, there was three trucks there. I got out of my truck. I went over to them and looked for where they're boot tracks left the parking area and they went the opposite way. And I was like, yep, that's definitely where I want to go. So, um, thick Creek bottom Creek's hard to get across the thick, just tangled, um, huckleberry and alder and stuff. It's, it's hard to bust through. It's loud. And then it was like a 250 foot, like pretty steep climb up to the first bench and then another steep climb up out of that. And then you're up on the primary Ridge. And so those, those factors, I mean, I found a bed, which I believe was that deer's bed, like when I was on my way back out. And uh, where he was bedded, he couldn't necessarily see the parking area, but he could definitely hear it. Mm -hmm. Like he definitely heard those trucks roll in. And I think that that's why he had gotten up and started out the way that where he was headed was he heard enough activity, Mm -hmm. you know, down there and probably been around the block enough times to know that when there's you know, some, some stuff going on down, down at the bottom there. It's a good idea to just put some, you know, distance between (laughs) you and it. So I'm pretty sure that's what he was doing, but that, I mean, that was a cool experience. Um, you know, so those are all things I think like I learned a lot, sharpen your skills. Yep. And, um, uh, give you the options, give you options A through Z. You know, I, I, as much as I'm like, Hey, I got all my eggs in one basket in this one tree, you know, <laughs> I still want to oh, have yeah. multiple options. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really, I think just kind of important. I mean, it doesn't have to be, it, maybe you have permission somewhere else or, yeah, you know, on a lease with somebody somewhere else or plan on taking some trips or whatever, yeah. you know, Break just having those options and getting the different exposures and different experiences. Um, but still having that, you know, quality, mm-hmm. uh, experience, um, kind of ready, uh, I think is, is really big. Nice. Well, I have to get, <laughs> we still have uh, the trade show. I know you mentioned you've been on the trade show circuit before, yep. but, um, we'll wrap it up, but I guess if folks want to find you, where can they, where can they do that? Um, so, um, for the, uh, Habitat podcast land plan team, um, you know, get on, uh, uh, the, the Habitat podcast, uh, website has a, a page that pretty much details all of that. Um, the Habitat podcast, uh, Facebook page, uh, as well as the, the group, the group's uh, good. Habitat chat yeah. is what it's called. Uh, I'm a moderator on there. Um, and, uh, you know, you can look me up on Facebook, Phil Holcomb. Um, also, uh, uh, on Instagram, um, I have a, a page there, the, um, the hunt for Habitat. Um, and, uh, 
yeah so you know feel free to look me up send me a message or whatever cool certainly appreciate it, it was fun i'm uh, i'm geared up for this fall but until then i'll be selling cameras in the archery also <laughs> yep so cool well i certainly appreciate it we'll have to connect again until next time all right thank you all right there you guys have it thank you for listening to this week's episode as always if you enjoyed it let me know leave a written review and also the link tree sign up where all the resources will be is in the description and we'll have an exodus trail camera episode tomorrow with ryan glitzky so if you're looking for some postseason scouting tips or planning an out-of-state hunt then that will be a great episode for you so until next time see you guys have a great week